Welcome to this week's message from Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. We're in this series called Beginnings. Today is part four. Uh, next week, I get a, a, a week break from preaching. Helps me to catch up on some of the other stuff I have to do. Stephen's going to be preaching, but then I'm going to carry on the series uh, after that. But Beginnings, we're looking at the first two chapters of, of Genesis because it's the beginning of the Bible But as the first two chapters, not just the beginning of the Bible, it's also the beginnings of many of the important themes, the most important themes and theologies that go throughout the rest of the Bible. So it's really foundational for understanding our faith and the rest of Scripture. So, but not just creation. In the first two chapters of of Genesis, we also see the beginnings of sin in the fall, and we see the repercussions of that throughout the rest of the Bible. It's also the beginnings of of gender and sexuality and marriage, which is what I'm going to talk to, I'll talk about today. And everybody goes, oh, really? Yes, this is what I'm going to talk about today. And I want to start off by reading you a couple of verses, beginnings. And, And these chapters are so foundational to everything we understand um, in the Bible and important theology and all that sort of stuff. So I'm going to read two verses here at the end of chapter 2, and then we're going to work our way through this uh, hot-button topic a little bit today. But anyway, chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's a good place to stop and pray, don't you think? So bow your heads with me and close your eyes, and let's pray to Jesus to speak to us today. Lord Jesus, you are sovereign Lord of this earth and of this church, and we honor you and we love you, and in a world that is increasingly filled with darkness and confusion and deception, we pray that your word would be a lamp to our feet, that your light would penetrate into our hearts, and that you would show us the truth and give us peace in that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to do something here before we get into the topic at hand. I want to talk a little bit about tolerance, and I think this is a really important topic. It's a really big topic in our culture these days, but I think it should also be a big topic in the church because actually tolerance is a biblical virtue. And so before we even get into this uh, topic, which as I said before, obviously is a hot-button topic in our culture, I, I want to talk about tolerance and what it really means. And I'm really motivated in these messages, this entire message series and this message this weekend. I'm really motivated by our young people. And some of you in this church, you're just at a stage of life. These questions that we're discussing and answering in this series, you kind of feel like you're past that. You're not worried about those things. Okay? You're, you're, you're just like, I just want to walk with Jesus and all that sort of stuff. And if that's where you're at in your life, that is, that's so great for you. That's awesome. But the fact of the matter is, our young people are being exposed to questions and attacks on Scripture and confusion, all these sorts of things. And, and my passion is to see our next generation raised up strong. Amen? And so I'm not afraid to talk about these topics, and I think it's very important that we talk about these topics. But I'm going to start here with a definition of the word tolerance. And, and this word tolerance is something that is greatly misunderstood in our, in our culture. But uh, let's start, so let's start with a definition of the word tolerance from the Oxford Dictionary. It says this, the ability or willingness <clears throat> excuse me, to tolerate the existence of opinions or behavior that one dislikes or disagrees with. Now that is a great definition of the word tolerance, okay? It starts with opinions. 
Tolerance is the ability to tolerate opinions not o- and beliefs not only that you do not that you don't agree with, but actually opinions and beliefs you dislike. I love that word dislike in there. It's not just a disagreement, say, over uh, which football team you like better or wh- what kind of food or dessert you like better. We're talking about beliefs of substance. It mean, tolerance means I have the ability to tolerate other people's beliefs that are different from mine, but not just different. I actually dislike them. In a tolerant society, we can tolerate differences of opinion and opinions we don't like. Does that make sense? But it's even more than just opinions and beliefs. It's also behavior. Tolerance is not just the ability to tolerate different beliefs than mine. It is the ability to tolerate different behaviors than mine. Behaviors I don't agree with and behaviors I don't like. That's what tolerance is. The ability to tolerate opinions and behaviors that I don't like and that I don't agree with. Now, again, as I said before, we live in a society that says it really values tolerance, and that's not a bad thing. The Bible teaches tolerance. Romans 12, verse 18 says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with, and the the last word there is so key, all. Live peaceably with all. Now, I could show you many other passages in Scripture that echo this kind of teaching, but I want you to notice the important thing here is Paul does not say live peaceably with your Christian brothers and sisters, even though obviously this would include that. It's not saying that we should fight with each other, but he doesn't limit it. He doesn't say you should live peaceably with your Christian brothers and sisters. You should live peaceably with those who live righteously and morally and basically agree with you in the most important things. That's not what he says. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That means everyone. The people who don't like you, the people who disagree with you, the people whose behavior you don't like, the people whose behavior who don't like your behavior, the people who hate you and persecute you, live peaceably with all. Now, of course, I always love his caveat there as well, if possible. Um, Sometimes some people won't, they just won't be at peace with us. But from our side, when it comes from the Christian side, when we're the ones who are Christians, from our side, We're going to treat everybody in a peaceable way. That means we're going to be gentle with everyone, regardless if we like their behavior or if we don't like it. Regardless of whether we agree with their opinions or whether we don't agree with them, we treat all people with gentleness and respect and generosity, etc., etc., etc. Does that make sense? So now let's, because this is the only way I know how to preach anyway, so let's just bring a razor-sharp focus to this thing and just bring this right in. And, and, and talk about what sometimes in churches in today's culture, it could be like a white elephant in a room, okay? So based on a verse like this and many others in Scripture, what should we do as a church? How should we behave when gay couples walk into our church on a weekend? Can he ask that question? Can we talk about this in church? What should we do? And I'll tell you what we should do. We should do the same thing we do with all people who come in our doors. All people should be treated the same way when they come in these doors. If you see someone new and it doesn't look like they know their way around here, take them for coffee in a cafe. Help them find where they're going in the church. Sit with them. Okay? Invite them over for dinner after. I hope that's how we treat all people, not just some people. I hope that's how we treat all people, not just the ones who agree with us. Isn't that true? Paul says, live peaceably at all. 
Now, whether we agree with someone's behavior or don't agree with their behavior, the Bible actually doesn't even just say we should live peaceably with all. There's a lot of other passages that say we should love all, which means anyone who comes in here should feel welcome. They should feel uh, kindness. They should feel our generosity, regardless if they like our teaching. Now, they may not like our teaching. They may not like our preacher. I just don't like the way that guy preaches. I don't like him. I don't like the truth in the Bible that he talks about. They may not like any of those things, but everyone in this community should know that if you walk into this building, they're going to smile at you, and they're going to love you, and they're going to welcome you in. Amen. That's actually how it should be. Amen? Amen. Is that the kind of church family we want to be? Yes. yes. Now, I want to talk about three things now briefly, just before we get into the passages. Three things briefly. I believe our society has begun to change the definition of tolerance to mean something it's not. And I just want to hit those very quickly. First of all, uh, false. Tolerance means agreement, okay? There's this idea in our culture that to be tolerant, you have to agree with what everybody else believes about certain hot-button topics, okay? The moment people think agreement means tolerance, it means they have no idea what the word tolerance means. Because tolerance means the ability to tolerate different beliefs. If everybody agrees... If everybody in a room agrees together, their behavior is pretty much the same, and their opinions and beliefs are the same, you don't need tolerance in that room. In fact, tolerance can't exist in that room because tolerance requires difference. You can only even begin to practice tolerance when someone has an opinion or belief you don't like. So until someone comes up to you and has an opinion or behavior you don't like, you don't even know what it means to be tolerant. Tolerance does not mean agreement. In fact, it's the opposite of that. It's the ability to tolerate disagreement. Another twist that sometimes we see in our culture is labeling certain beliefs tolerant or intolerant. Now, you say, well, what's wrong with labeling beliefs intolerant or tolerant? It shows again that we have no idea what the word tolerant means. A belief is not intolerant or tolerant in and of itself. A belief is just a belief. Tolerance is a bigger umbrella word that looks at the different beliefs and says, I can tolerate different ones. But to label a belief intolerant, you've already missed the point of what tolerance is. Tolerance is tolerating different beliefs. Now, I know there's a certain subset of beliefs that are wicked and evil. Any belief that uh, says a certain group of human beings for any reason is less worthy of being treated with human dignity or less valuable or any, any belief that promotes against a certain group of people for any reason, you know, bullying or violence or any of those sorts of things, those are wicked and evil beliefs. But a belief that something is right or wrong is not in and of itself tolerant or intolerant. Tolerance is the ability to, to accept people with different beliefs. Does that make sense? Now, the question is, because in our culture it is often said that to believe someone's behavior is wrong is to reject the person. And that is actually, that's actually a logical fallacy. Okay, it's actually a logical fallacy. It is absolutely, in every human being, we actually know this, it is absolutely possible to believe that what someone does is wrong without hating the person who's doing the wrong. If that wasn't possible, we would all hate everyone. For example, <clears throat> just a couple of examples. There are Christians, and I know Christians, I have friends in this church. 
There are good people in this church and many Christians, you know, around the world who think taking your kids out, you know, trick-or-treating on Halloween is wrong, okay? They think it's wrong. I took my kids out trick-or-treating last year. I don't know why. I, I hate Halloween. I hate candy. It's just the peer pressure of my, of my kids, so I took them out, okay? <laughs> so I take my kids out. Now, when I'm going out, am I thinking to myself, of all the people I know in the church who think it's wrong, and am I thinking, oh, they hate me now? If they see me now, they're going to bully me. They're going to discriminate against me. Do I think that because they believe what I'm doing is wrong, they automatically hate me? Absolutely not. We have a disagreement about behavior. That's what tolerance is, yes? Yes. We have Christians in this church who believe it is always wrong to drink alcohol. We have Christians in this church who believe it's okay to have alcohol in moderation, say a glass of wine at a dinner or whatever. Now, do the people who believe it's always wrong, do they automatically hate all these other people in church? Absolutely not. I've been in a the, in the room with people from both sides and we all love each other and it's all this sort of stuff because you can believe something is wrong without hating the person. Absolutely. We do this many, many times in many different ways in our society and in our lives. I mean, there are, there are groups of Amish people and strict Mennonites who believe it's wrong to drive cars. Do you feel hated? Do you feel hurt by that? you feel discriminated against? No, I'm just not joining, in, joining a colony. I'm just not. Because we disagree. But I'm sure glad they have the freedom we can tolerate those differences. Isn't it true? Okay? Now, the exact same thing. Now, I'm not, I am not comparing homosexuality to any of those issues other than on a philosophical level to say, on a logical philosophical level, you cannot say that it is intolerant to believe homosexual same-sex intercourse is a sin means I automatically don't love homosexuals. That is a logical fallacy. Does that make sense? Lastly, and I haven't even talked here yet about whether it is a sin or not or what the Bible says. I'm just laying down some ground, some ground rules here that I think are really important. Lastly, it is false that tolerance means all beliefs are equally correct. Okay? Tolerance means I can tolerate all these different beliefs and opinions and behaviors. It doesn't mean that they're all equal, that they're all equally valid, or that they're all correct. For example, as I talked about uh, last week, there are people in this world, a minority, but there are people who really believe strongly that the earth is flat. And then most of everybody else believes it's a globe. I don't know what other options there are, although someone did send me a, a, a link this last week about the Banana Earth Society. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that one was a joke. I'm really hoping. But anyway, you've got people who are flat earth. You've got people where they think it's a globe. Now, aren't you glad we live in a society that tolerates, if you want to believe flat or globe, I'm so glad we live in a society that allows you to believe differently, aren't you? I'm really glad. People should have the freedom to believe. Now, does that mean both beliefs have equal validity? No. Are they both right? Absolutely not. Is it okay for people on the flat earth side to write you guys are ignorant. You don't know what you're doing. It is okay. They should be allowed to do that. And it's okay for people on the globe side to say, this is ridiculous. It is okay. Tolerance does not mean the beliefs are equal in validity. I'm glad we live in a country, and I wish every country had this freedom. I am glad we live in a country where people can believe in Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam or atheism or Christianity. I'm glad we live in a country that is supposed to be absolutely tolerant of different beliefs. But does that mean that they're all right? That they're all equal? Absolutely not. Atheists say there is no God. 
The Muslims and Christians and Jews say there's one God. The Hindus say something totally different. Now, they can't all be right. They can't be right. And tolerance cannot mean that I can't debate in a public square with a Hindu and say, this is why I think I'm right, and this is why I think you're wrong, because in a tolerant society, we should all be able to seek truth. And that means in a tolerant society, I'm okay with a Hindu telling me I'm wrong. I would expect him to think he's, that I'm wrong, otherwise he wouldn't be a Hindu. If I thought Hinduism was correct, I wouldn't be a Christian anymore, I would convert to Hinduism. So I'm not, just in case any of you want to start a rumor about that. But if I thought it was true, I would. I mean, that's, what it, that's the whole point of tolerance, okay? We are able to tolerate different beliefs, and we have the freedom to judge other beliefs and actions as wrong. That doesn't mean that we want to do violence to anyone or hurt anyone. Obviously not. The Bible teaches to love all people, okay? So now with that kind of as a foundation of proper thinking about tolerance, now I just want to ask the question, not what does Chris say, about homosexuality? What do Christians think about homosexuality and marriage or any of those things? I just want to look at what does the Bible say, okay? So this is the book we want to look at. This is a series on beginnings. What does the Bible say about homosexuality, about marriage, about gender, and all of that, okay? What, it, what does the Bible say, all right? Now remember our statement from last week. At this church, we believe very strongly that the Bible is the Word of God. And as such, it is absolutely true in everything it means to teach, right? Okay? Now, again, um, if you're here and you're kind of from outside of the church, this is not a message today to people who are not in the church, who don't, who don't consider themselves Christians. If, if, to people who are not inside the church, they don't consider themselves Christians, they don't believe in the Word of God, uh, they don't care what the Bible says about homosexuality. So there's different messages to them, and we talk about, you know, how, it, how do we know if there's a God out there? And we go out there and we tie the Bible and all that sort of stuff. This is a message to people in the church. And within the church, again, as I said last week, there are different ways to read the Bible. On the one end, we have what I will call, again, theological liberals. It has nothing to do with politics. We're not talking about political liberals here. We're talking about theological liberals, people who think we can kind of change the Bible uh, if we don't like what it says. So these are people who, on the issue of homosexuality and marriage, might say there's portions in here that are myth, there's portions in here that don't matter anymore, there's portions in here we can ignore or whatever, they're obsolete, okay? And yet they would still call themselves Christians and they would say they believe in Jesus and those sorts of things. So that's one end of the spectrum, okay? And then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum, you can have people who are overly literalistic with Scripture and stuff. We talked a bit about that last week. But again, our purpose is to say, what does the Bible mean to say on this topic? Okay? And so what I want to do today is because sometimes people... And by the way, I have no animosity towards people on either end of this spectrum. I mean, people who I would call theologically liberal on the Christian spectrum, there are many wonderful people over there. Did you know that? They're not stupid. They're not evil Okay, for the most part, they're wonderful people really trying to love. Often they really focus on the love aspects of Scripture, which that part is awesome. But my point is, if this is the Word of God, then it has to be true in everything it means to teach. Amen. And sometimes over here, these people will take passages in Scripture, and I've seen them. I've, I've read up on this subject so much. I've watched videos on YouTube and all kinds of things to see what are the, kind of the arguments. And I've seen people take passages of Scripture that say one thing and literally turn them 180 degrees to say the exact opposite. 
And that's sometimes the fear that Christians who are more to this end of the spectrum is, there's this fear that people can just take the Bible and make it say whatever they want. So what I want to show you today, and then we're going to apply it to Genesis, I want to show you two tests, two tests that we can use when we're trying to determine what Scripture teaches on some of these important things. I want to show you two tests, just very basic tests that we can use to see what does the Scripture teach so that we can feel solid, that we're not twisting things, we're not making it the Scriptures say what we want it to say, okay? And the first test is a very basic one. It's called the clear versus not clear test, okay? Clear versus not clear. What do I mean by that? One of the, the strategies that is sometimes employed by people who want to change what the Bible says is they'll start with a passage that is obscure or hard to understand or not clear, and they will look at that and say, look, we don't know what this says. You know, maybe they'll even twist it around a bit, and then they'll go to a passage that is clear and say, see, we don't know what this says either, and it brings confusion, and people go, well, maybe we don't know what the Bible says, okay? But what I, so what I want to acknowledge here this morning is that there are both in the scriptures, clear passages and unclear passages. But the fact that there are unclear passages does not mean we cannot understand what the clear passages say. Can I just show you one example? I could show you many. I was having fun with this a little bit this week. There are many passages in scripture that will make you scratch your head. Here's one. In the middle of a talk on the resurrection, the apostle Paul says this famous passage, 1 Corinthians 15. We preach on this passage often. We've never preached on this verse, and I've never heard another pastor preach on it either. 1 Corinthians 15, 29, in the middle of his talk about the resurrection, this great, motivating, amazing talk, Paul says this, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why? Why? How many of you have ever been baptized on behalf of the dead? Anybody? I'm just actually just checking. I mean, you're not bad if you, if you do because you're just obeying Scripture. Okay, I've never been baptized on behalf of the dead either. What on earth is Paul talking about here? Do you want to know what? I have no idea. <laughs> you say, oh my goodness, my faith is shaken. First of all, you put too much faith in me in that case. Okay, way too much. The fact of the matter is, as C.S. Lewis would say, God did not give us a tame book. Amen. He did not give us an antiseptic, cleaned up, neat point form, nicely explained in modern English book. He gave us a book that was written by approximately, because some of the books we don't know exactly who the author is, but was written by approximately 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 to 1,800 years. The oldest parts of this book are somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 years old, written in a culture and in a language that is extremely far removed from ours. That's the book God gave us as his inspired book. Now that fact, when we think about how this book was written and how long ago it was written, it should not surprise us that there are some passages in here that not only are hard to figure out, might even be impossible to figure out until Jesus comes back. There are definitely, we'll just acknowledge that right here, passages in here that are hard to understand and that are unclear. And the fact that some people take those passages and twist them to bring confusion to clear passages actually also shouldn't surprise us because it's been happening. This is not just a modern phenomenon. It's something that goes back to New Testament times. I want to read you a passage that has been a big motivation for me in preaching this series and this message this weekend, 2 Peter 3, 15-17. 
Peter says this, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, I just love that. Peter and Paul live at the same time. I wonder if Paul read this letter and is going, Peter, are you kidding me? Okay, are you taking a shot at me, Peter? Peter says, he writes, okay, you guys are reading Paul's letters. And he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, now that makes me feel good because how many of you have ever been reading the book of Romans and gone, what? In your devotions, what? Peter was already going, what? To some of Paul's writings a couple thousand years ago, okay? There are some things in them hard to understand. Now, look what he says next. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do to the other scriptures. In this, and this has been going on since the New Testament times, but never more than before in the age of the internet. And I'm not against the internet. And I'm not against people doing research on the internet, any of those sorts of things. But we are flooded now with so much information from every side. Anybody who's got some half baked idea about anything can put it on the internet. They can put a website up that looks legitimate, they can put videos on YouTube. And they can say whatever they want, and Christians come away confused. I talk to more and more Christians who are confused. I'm getting links all the time. What do you think of this video? What do you think of that video? I don't have time to read most or to watch most of them, but every once in a while I'll watch a couple minutes, and then I usually know in a couple of minutes and I'm laughing. But, but it's like there are people, Christians are confused. And so the unstable are twisting the Scriptures. Now look what it says in the next part. You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. One of the reasons I want to preach this message, especially for the young generation, but for all of us, is that we would not lose our stability in these times. That we can be confident in what we believe and in what the Bible says. Very, very important, okay? So the fact that there are some passages that are unclear and hard to understand does not mean we can twist the ones that are clear. So let's begin to go back now to Genesis and to apply this and look at how this test looks. Okay, so let's start with Genesis 1 verse 1, an easy one. It says this in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the question is, is that clear or not clear? It's clear. Some of you aren't quite sure. Because again, there's that fear, right? There's a little bit of that fear. Well, maybe if we looked at the Hebrew... Maybe if we, different context, maybe it doesn't actually say that in the beginning he created the heavens and the earth. So how do we know that something says what it says? Okay, that's a good question. Okay? I mean, the first test, is it clear? It's not a figure of speech. Uh, it's not hyperbole. It looks like just a bare statement. But how do we really know? Okay, I'm going to give you your second test. It's not just clear versus not clear. There's a second test for that, and it, for all the major teachings in Scripture that we can use. And the second test is, is this a teaching that is repeated elsewhere in Scripture, or is this a theme that spans Scripture from beginning to end? If it is, it's not just something we can twist and turn around. Does that make sense? There are some obscure passages, don't really know what to do with it. But then there are teachings where it's like this is repeated over and over and over, and it spans Old and New Testaments, then that's a major theme. You can't just throw it out. Does that make sense? So Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm pretty sure that's clear. Like, that's a pretty straightforward statement. We shouldn't really need to question it, but I know for sure because the rest of the Bible repeats this claim literally dozens and dozens of time, th- times throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. This truth is repeated again and again. So we know what we have here is a very important theme. God created everything that is. 
Let me just show you a couple of verses, okay? Isaiah 45, verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. That's in Isaiah. Psalm, or Proverbs 3, 19 to 20, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. Psalm 134, verse 3, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Colossians, and I could show you verse after verse after verse after verse. This is just the bare minimum skipping through, but here's one from the New Testament as well. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So clearly the fact that God created the heavens and the earth is a major theme in scripture. We're not just mistaking or getting it out of context in Genesis 1. Okay? So now let's go to the issue of gender and sexuality and marriage. Okay? Genesis 1 verses 26 to 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So again, first question is, is it clear? It seems to be pretty straightforward. Is this hyperbole? Is it figure of speech? It seems to just be a very straightforward sentence. God made people, and when he made them, he made them male, and he made them female. Now, there's people, and again, I'm not talking to people outside the church now because they don't care about what the Bible says. I'm talking to people inside the church. There are people inside the church now, call themselves Christians, who would say, ah, you know what, this is kind of just a myth. Gender isn't just restricted to male and female. There's a whole continuum there and all kinds of other stuff. So the question is, okay, well, maybe, you, and then they'll go into context and do all this stuff, like maybe that's not really what Genesis 1 meant. So the question is, can we find this kind of teaching repeated throughout Scripture? Is this something we can really stand on that's a major theme, kind of a backbone through the Bible? Well, let's, let's look. The very next chapter, just in case we got this one wrong, chapter 2 now expands on this statement and tells the story of how and why God created genders, the two genders. Okay? So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So now God's going to solve the problem. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So now we have Genesis 1, male and female. Okay, now that's not an obscure passage though. We know now, what, like was Moses thinking God created the male and female. Well, he proves it in Genesis 2 because now he expands on it and he talks about how Adam was lonely. He needed a helper fit for him. So God created woman out of man. You have man and you have woman. You can see Moses clearly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, means to say that God created male and female. Okay? Now, the very end of the creation story, the creation story ends at the end of chapter 2. We have the next two verses which end chapter 2 and we have the first implications Okay, of what God has done with male and female. Here's the implication, okay? Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, okay? So you have to understand, this is the end of the creation, creation story. This is the culmination. God creates the universe, God creates animals, plants, all these sorts of things, and at the end of it, he creates the, the culmination of his creative work is human beings, and he makes them male and female, and then he institutes marriage in the very beginning of the whole Bible, the whole story, okay? So, now that's interesting that these are the first two chapters of the Bible. This is the beginning of everything there is, okay? Now again, someone from this side of the spectrum, and again, we love them. We don't hate these people. We're not against them. We tolerate. We have a disagreement, okay? Okay? But we want to know what does the Bible say, not what do we want it to say. Amen? Amen. Okay? They might come along and they might just say, well, all of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is just a myth, and we know better than that now. So now we need to look at Genesis 1 and 2 and say, okay, is this just one thing, or can we find this affirmed elsewhere in Scripture? And why don't we go to Jesus first? Should we go to Jesus first? Sure. I mean, he's God, right? He's God. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. What does Jesus think? Does Jesus think that Genesis 1 and 2 are just a myth that we can write off? Or does Jesus think that Genesis 1 and 2 are the authoritative God, uh, word of God that applies to us? Well, fortunately, he talked about it in the Gospels. And I'll take you to one place, and that is Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus with a question about marriage. Specifically, they want to be breaking up their marriages so that they can marry new wives, okay? And so they come to Jesus with a question, and they say this. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Now, where is he quoting from? Genesis what? 1. But he doesn't want us just stuck in Genesis 1. He's now going to quote Genesis 2. Verse 5, And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate it. Now, there are so many things I find fascinating about, about this passage. The first one is that Jesus himself believes that Genesis 1 and 2 are authoritative for our lives today. Do you notice that Jesus, when they ask him a question about divorce, he does not go, um, I think this, or I believe you should do this, or I don't like it, even though he's God. Even though he's God, that's not how he answers the Pharisees. How does God answer the Pharisees? God says to them, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. Okay? Now you say, well, Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't specifically talk about divorce. Now this is the really fascinating part. You're right, it doesn't specifically talk about divorce, and yet Jesus believes it speaks to everything regarding marriage. Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 and 2 and says, do you see divorce in there? I see two becoming one. I don't see divorce there. God doesn't like divorce, okay? Now, I know we live in a broken world, yada, 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 and if you're sitting here today and you're divorced, don't feel condemned. We love you. God loves you. He can forgive all things. Okay, we got that? Okay, I'm not here heaping... Well, that, that's just a different topic, but I'm, all I'm saying is... Jesus says Genesis 1 and 2 is the blueprint. And what you see in the blueprint, anything outside of that blueprint, is not how you're supposed to be doing it. That's what Jesus says. And he's God. Now, I want to remind you of something again. Because again, I'm not talking to people outside the church. If you're from outside the church, you don't care what Jesus says. 
But if you call yourself a Christian, I don't care which side of the spectrum you're on. If you call yourself a Christian, that means something. It means you believe Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for our sins, and that he proved he was God by rising from the dead, raising himself from the dead. If you don't believe that, you're actually not a Christian. You're maybe a cultural Christian, but you're not actually a Christian. I'm talking to people who believe Jesus is God. Now, if you believe Jesus is God, even if you consider yourself more to the theologically liberal side, if you believe Jesus is God, if he's God, then he is the final authority and perfect in all things. Amen. Isn't that true? And if Jesus, the one who made us, thinks Genesis 1 and 2 is the picture of God's plan of what marriage and sexuality are supposed to be, then that is what we are bound to think if we call him Lord. Amen. Now again, I know some people are going to argue, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus isn't talking about homosexuality here. He's talking about divorce. Genesis 1 and 2 aren't talking about uh, homosexuality. They're talking, uh, it's just talking about marriage, okay? And so I want to talk about that for a moment because one of the most common objections I see when I look on the internet, when I read books, watch videos, all these sorts of things, what people are saying on this topic, one of the most common things you will hear said is, nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus talk about homosexuality, therefore he doesn't think it's a big deal. Okay? Nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus talk about homosexuality, therefore it isn't a big deal. Now, first of all, let's acknowledge this. They're right that nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus talk about explicitly about homosexuality. But let me tell you why that is really bad reasoning. It's called an argument from silence. Arguments from silence are never good arguments, okay? Because there are lots of things Jesus does not talk about in the Gospels. He does not talk about incest. He does not talk about witchcraft. He does not talk about bestiality. He does not talk about child abuse. By the way, I'm not trying to compare any of those to homosexuality. They're very different things. My point is arguments from silence. He doesn't talk about any of those things. Is anybody want, does anybody want to stand up and say Jesus was in favor of incest because he never talked about it? That Jesus was in favor of witchcraft because he never talked about it? I don't think so. The fact of the matter is, we don't have every single conversation Jesus ever had in here. And second of all, Jesus came to a particular place in time, which means he was answering the questions people in that culture had, not the questions we have in this culture. If he had come to walk the earth today in Canada, he no doubt would have talked about homosexuality because that's a big question in our culture. But Jews in first century uh, in the first century there, we're not asking the question, is same-sex marriage okay? Because they just assumed the Old Testament was right and they believed it was a sin. They didn't ask that question. And Jesus wasn't answering our questions. He was living in that time period. Does that make sense? Okay. And furthermore, I just have to take one little rabbit trail, then we're going to go back, Matthew 19, and quickly through the Old, the Old Testament scriptures here. Furthermore, the other thing you have to understand when that argument comes up, because it's so common, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality. The other thing you have to understand is, is every single place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about sexual morality or righteousness, in every single case, he always upholds and affirms the Old Testament moral commands. Everywhere. And I could show you, I could sit down with you and we could go through the entire Gospels and we could look at every single time. He sometimes got mad at them for their keeping of the ceremonial laws and some of those, but when it comes to the moral law, he always affirmed the Old Testament. And I'll just show you one example, his overarching theology of the law. Let me show you this in Matthew 5. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the what? The law. 
or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Let me ask you something. Have heaven and earth passed away? Outside, the sky hadn't fallen yet when I was uh, biking to church this morning. Jesus said, until heaven and earth fall away, it's not pat- the moral commands of the Old Testament are not passing away. Then he says this, therefore, whoever relaxes, listen to this, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So now back to, to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, the Pharisees ask a question about marriage, and Jesus says, the blueprint is in Genesis 1-2, that is the authority for marriage. On what basis do we think, if someone had asked him a question, is same-sex marriage okay, or is homosexuality okay, do we think he would say, in divorce, Genesis 1 and 2 is the authority, but in this case, it's not the authority. Does that make any sense? It doesn't. Jesus clearly believed that the picture in Genesis 1 and 2 is the picture of what marriage is supposed to be between one man and one woman. Okay? That's what Jesus believed. Now, we see the picture in Genesis 1 and 2. We see the authority of that picture affirmed by Jesus in the Gospels. And then I want to just finish here in just a couple of minutes. I'll just take you on a quick uh, breeze through Scripture. It is also reaffirmed again and again throughout the Old Testament commandments and the New Testament where again and again the Word of God forbids sexual activity outside of the picture of marriage we find in Genesis 1 and 2. So we'll start with Leviticus 18, which says, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now you say, oh, why would you read that verse in, in church? Why would you read that, Chris? That's not a good verse. Let me just tell you something. I'll tell you why we read that verse in church. Because it's in the Bible. Yes. It's actually the Word of God. Is it the Word of God or is it not? We actually need the Word of God to point the way for us. Leviticus 18 is in the Bible. Now, I do want you to notice something, though. I want you to notice there, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It does not say he or they is an abomination, does it? It does not say he or they. It says you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. I want to tell you something right now. God loves people. He is not against people who have a temptation. He is not against people who even engage in this kind of behavior. He is against a behavior that is really important for us to understand and grasp. And it's important enough to him that he put it in the Word of God, which means it's, it's to our hurt if we disobey the Word of God. Isn't that true? So God does not think people who are in a homosexual lifestyle or engage in homosexual behavior, he does not think they're an abomination. He loves them as much as he loves you or me. Absolutely. And so should we. But the behavior he knows is destructive. You say, you know what, Chris? I don't, I don't believe Leviticus 18 because there's lots of laws in Leviticus we don't follow. And you're right about that. And that's why in two weeks, next week, actually, Stefan's preaching. I get a one-week break from preaching. I got some other stuff I got to catch up on. But in two weeks when I come back to this, I'm actually going to talk about that question because there's some really uh, important stuff we've got to know there. I'm also going to talk about slavery and, and gender and all kinds of things. But suffice it for now, you say, I'm not, I don't believe in Leviticus 18 because there's lots of 
passages in Leviticus that we don't listen to, okay? So let's just leave Leviticus 18 for just a moment, and let's go to the New Testament. Leviticus 18 is repeated in the New Testament, okay? It's not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New. Paul says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 26 to 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. That's the, that's the New Testament. That's the Apostle Paul. And again, all of us are guilty of sin. That's the teaching of the New Testament. We're not picking on one here. I'm just showing you Genesis 1-2 isn't an obscure passage. Matthew 19 is an obscure passion passage. Leviticus 18 isn't an obscure passage. This is all part of a Bible-wide theme. You can't just take any pieces out. It's part of the backbone of God's picture for marriage and sexuality and how he made us male and female. Amen. I'll finish with one passage. We're running out of time. I, won't, I could show you a couple more, but I'm just going to finish with one. 1 Corinthians 6 9 to 10, Paul says this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, we should really take that soberly when we read this list. I've seen people online try to twist the words in this passage to make it seem like it's not saying what it's saying. But I want you to notice here, we should not be seeking to twist this passage. We should be seeking to understand it because it's that sobering. It starts with, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a really sobering statement that these people, Paul is going to write down a list of the kinds of behaviors that keep people from the kingdom of God, that keep people out of heaven. That's serious. We should want to know what is on this list so we can warn ourselves and others. Amen? Amen. So we're not, going to, we're not even going to pick anyone out and just say this one is worse than any of the others. They're all on there. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, I have it underlined there, not because it's the worst one or it's the one we should pick on, only because that's the message we're talking about today. All of this is tied back to Genesis 1 and 2 and Jesus in Matthew 19. It's what the whole Bible teaches. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. Ooh, why did he have to put that one on there? Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you're, some of you are going, you're reading this passage, and you're going, oh my goodness gracious. First of all, he's not saying here that if you struggle with these things, you haven't inherited the kingdom of God. It's saying if, the, if you are wholeheartedly pursuing these things without repentance, then you have not been saved because your heart has not been regenerated. But believers will struggle with these things until the resurrection. So having a temptation in any of these areas does not mean you're not going to heaven. It does not mean God hates you. It just means you're human. And that's another thing we're going to talk about in two weeks, which is our fallen nature which makes us attracted to things and feel things and want things that are sinful. But I'm going to finish this message now by reading the next couple of verses after this, which I didn't put on PowerPoint. And here's what the next verses say right after that. So you have this list, people who will not enter the kingdom of God. And then it says this, and such were some of you. Isn't that great in a past tense? And such were. Wait a minute, Paul, are you saying they don't struggle with it anymore? No. These Corinthians had a whole bunch of bad stuff going on in their church. They were still struggling, and yet Paul talks about in the past tense, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's the thing, if you've accepted Jesus into your life, no matter what you're struggling with today, Jesus no longer defines you by your sin. He defines you by his forgiveness of you. 
So I don't want anybody in here today going out of this message feeling down and condemned and like you're hated. You are not hated. You are loved. If you struggle with something, you're in good company because everybody here in this room today struggles with stuff. And such were some of you, but you have been forgiven and you have been sanctified and you have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I'm going to pray for you. And we're going to come back to this topic again in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about some of the common questions in our culture and what the Bible says to them. But I just want to pray for you here today. Lord Jesus, I want to pray a blessing on every person here today. May we become the friendliest, most welcoming, most tolerant church in this province, in this country. And yet, Lord, bold, standing strong in the truth of your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. If there's anybody here today that just needs to receive your grace, I pray that they would turn to you and you would show them your love and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.